0: Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance.
1: We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here is the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I am Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today is a special edition of the podcast as we record this episode, Stephen Kirshner, a distinguished teaching professor in the Department of Philosophy at the State University of New York at Fredonia, has been suspended from his regular academic duties, barred from campus, and prohibited from making contact with his students. He's being treated as if he posed a threat to the safety of the campus, but the reason for his being put under investigation by university officials is because of something that he said. He has legal help provided by the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, and both FIRE and the Academic Freedom Alliance have released public letters in his support. Unlike some recent um, academic freedom disputes, Kirshner is not being targeted for expressing his political opinions on Twitter or for criticizing university policies. He is being targeted for discussing his scholarly work in a public setting. In 2015, while serving as the chair of his department, he published a scholarly monograph at an academic press entitled Pedophilia and Adult Child Sex a philosophical analysis. I think it's fair to say that the book was little noticed at the time. This followed up on some articles that he had published over the previous decade in scholarly journals, examining the philosophical underpinnings to the immorality and illegality of sexual acts between adults and children. The current trouble started uh, when he appeared on The Brain in a Vat, a video podcast posted on YouTube, which examines philosophical topics for a public audience. An hour-long episode on the topic of sexual taboos was posted in January, 2022. Short clips from that episode were distributed by the Libs of TikTok Twitter account, and from there ignite a firestorm of controversy in the right-leaning media. The president of SUNY Fredonia quickly denounced Kirchner's views as reprehensible and absolutely abhorrent and launched an investigation of the professor. Rather than focusing on the academic freedom principles at stake in this case, I thought it'd be useful to do something a little different. Judging by by email and the public commentary, there are many members of the public and of the broad prof- professoriate who have seen press reports of this case or heard a snippet of the podcast and have come to the conclusion that only a pedophile or someone who wants to help pedophiles would say the things that Professor Kirshner has said. Given that, it seemed potentially useful to consider the extent to which what Professor Kirshner is doing is out of bounds for a professional philosopher and walk through what it is philosophers actually do, especially those interested in applied ethics. To lead us through this territory, I'm joined by an expert guide, Jeff McMahon, the Sikra and Whites Professor of Moral Philosophy at the University of Oxford. He was a previously a distinguished professor of philosophy at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And Jeff specializes in applied ethics and moral philosophy. And among his books is Killing in War and The Ethics of Killing, Problems at the Margins of Life. Thank you very much for joining me, Jeff, and welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Thanks, Keith. Uh, Since I became involved in this controversy, I have been emphatically informed by correspondence uh, that only a child rapist or an enabler child rapist would say the things that Professor Kirshner has said. I know he has been receiving even more colorful expressions of that view uh, than I have. Um, So let me just start there. Is he doing philosophy? Uh,
0: let me begin by confessing that I have not watched the podcast on uh, Brain in a Vat, uh, and I've only had a chance to glance at some passages in his book from 2015. So I have to say, I don't know the substance of his mm-hmm. views, though I know a little about what he's alleged to have said. But beginning around the late 1960s, early 1970s, philosophers, and by this I mean academic philosophers, began to think carefully and rigorously about controversial moral issues, including abortion, war, and uh, other such topics. And the philosophers have subsequently written about issues having to do with sex um, one of the best-selling philosophy books at the moment is a book called the right to sex by a colleague of mine here at Oxford Amya Srinivasan that book is much discussed and it discusses some of these issues It, for example uh, discusses a range of, of um, problems like you know, whether professors are, it's permissible for professors to have sex with students and and things like that. So um, pedophilia as a moral issue has not been much discussed. I know of a few articles in academic journals about pedophilia and in particular about whether it's wrong for pedophiles to uh, use, to to buy and use child pornography. I don't think anybody disputes the idea that the production of child pornography is seriously morally wrong. Um, I, I, apart from Kirshner, if he in fact does defend this, I don't know of anybody who has defended the permissibility of an adult having sexual relations with a child, even if the child consents. Um, on the other hand, the issue of pedophilia is an important issue in at least one respect, and that is that there are, in fact, far more pedophiles than most people realize. It's estimated that about 1% of males globally are pedophiles or at least have pedophilic desires. And Some of these have some of these people have exclusively pedophilic sexual desires. Some of them have both pedophilic sexual desires and sexual desires for adults. Um, But the ones who have exclusively pedophilic desires tend to be ordinary people, moral people, just like the rest of us. They didn't choose to have the sexual desires they've got. Um, They they found themselves with them as they grew older. Uh, Most of them by far most of them, the evidence suggests, are non-practicing in the sense that they don't ever attempt to have any sexual relations with children, nor do many or most of them use any kind of child pornography. They therefore live lonely lives, isolated lives, lives without the kind of satisfactions that most of the rest of us have, or at least open to the rest of us. And they can't discuss their condition with other people because pedophiles are so widely reviled. If somebody says, I'm a pedophile, though I don't molest children, they're going to have a hard time keeping a job and retaining friends and so on. So these people uh, are victims of really, I think, very serious uh, injustice and mistreatment in the society. And something does need to be done about that. I'm referring now to pedophiles who do not actually... Uh, abuse children in any way whatsoever. And I think it wasn't until just recently that I realized how uh, widespread a problem this is. Uh, It's not visible because nobody is, pedophiles generally tend not to be, not to have sufficient courage to say publicly, I'm a pedophile, I'm not a child rapist. I'm just like the rest of you, except that I'm burdened with these desires that I'd rather not have. Um, So that's the kind of issue that I think um, does need to be discussed. Um, and as I say, I haven't read uh, Kirshner's works uh, and I haven't listened to the podcast. So I'm not sure what exactly he discusses or said, but this is a moral issue like many other moral issues. Um, and a great many of these moral issues have been discussed by philosophers um, who have then received a lot of um, uh, uh, which I say anger, uh, vilification um, as a result of their remarks. Um, Abortion used to be an issue on which uh, people had very passionate views. The anti-abortion people have sometimes gone to the abortion clinics and uh, killed the abortion providers, which shows uh, how strong feelings can be on that issue. And yet philosophers have written about this in ways that are absolutely necessary for understanding the morality of abortion. Um, For example, one of the most important issues is when do we begin to exist? If we don't begin to exist at conception, but there's some kind of human organism that develops before a person begins to exist, somebody like you or me, then... It may well be that early abortions don't actually kill anybody like you or me, but simply prevent one of us from coming into existence. Now, that would be an important point to make in a debate about abortion. So everything in the debate about abortion really does hinge on what philosophers would call the metaphysics of personal identity. And the same is true with a great many other moral issues. Um, People have strong views on these issues, but don't understand them well.
1: And here's philosophers can help. Yeah, so, uh, so your early point about uh, the fact that pedophilia is, is not extensively studied, not well understood in general uh, by, um, the public, uh, unfortunately, brings to mind this, this episode is very much brought to mind for me, um, a case that, that the Act of Freedom Alliance was involved with as well as fire just a couple of months ago, uh, where there's an empirical sociologist who is at Old Dominion uh, University down in uh, public university down in Virginia. Um, who uh, studies, um, uh, among other things, um, uh, pedophiles, um, people who are attracted to adults who are attracted to minors. Um, and uh, uh, that sociologist is very interested in harm reduction strategies and questions about um, uh, how do you manage uh, this kind of population in order to uh, prevent more abusive children. Um, that sociologist also went on a podcast to talk about Uh, uh, the research uh, that the sociologist was, was conducting that generated very similar public controversy in that case, um, uh, the sociologists are driven off campus um, and the university eventually uh, separated itself uh, from the sociologists. So um, I'm hopeful that that doesn't happen ultimately to Professor uh, Kirshner when this investigation is done. Um, but obviously this is an extraordinarily sensitive topic um, and and you would hope academia, academia is one of the places where we can seriously explore uh, the kinds of issues that we need to talk about with this uh, topic. And yeah, it's very hard um, uh, precisely because um, uh, these are such touchy and, and sensitive topics, and it's so easy to misrepresent exactly what it is um, uh, people um, are doing in this this sphere. Um, One natural sort of kind of reaction, including apparently the president of um, Kirchner's University, um, has had to this is to think, well, look, these are topics we already know the right answer to. Um, we already know uh, what the correct answer is about um, uh, sexual relations between uh, children and adults. Uh, what more is there to be said? Why should we be asking these questions um, uh, if, if we think the answers are are, are already obvious? Um, I find philosophers often aren't very satisfied uh, with that way of thinking about things. Um, so tell us about why it is that uh, even things that we think we already know the answer to to uh, sometimes we need to be uh, thinking more carefully. Good, thanks. Let me give you
0: uh, a good example here. I think Um, this would be uh, infanticide. For centuries, it has been universally believed that infanticide is murder. You kill a baby, you're a murderer. In fact, you're worse than a murderer of an adult because babies are wholly innocent, wholly helpless and so on. But it's uh, long been the case that abortions are possible. And throughout much of recent history, uh people have tended to approve of abortion even in the United States in the 19th century there was very little opposition to abortion it wasn't practiced in the same way or as extensively as it has been in the 20th and 21st centuries. But it was a it was a known practice and people assumed that this was was okay for for most of the time. Um, and yet everyone thought that infanticide is murder. Now as we know if we think about it for a little bit, what is the difference between a fetus and an infant? It's a matter of geography, it's a matter of location. A human organism is a fetus if it's in a woman's womb, as soon as it's given birth to, it's an infant. Infants uh, can be born very prematurely and survive. They can now be born and survive after about 20 weeks when they haven't even acquired the capacity for consciousness yet. So what that means is that there is roughly a period of about five months during which one in the same individual can be either a fetus or an infant. And very many people think that, it would, that it can be, there can be reasons that would justify a woman having an abortion at five months. But if that same individual were uh, outside of her womb, killing it would be regarded as murder. So I think everybody has a most everybody has a problem here. That is, our views are not consistent, and we have to think them through. And that has led some philosophers to argue that infanticide can be permissible in certain cases, provided it is early, done early, and painlessly, and so on. It's no different from a late abortion. Um, these philosophers have been reviled and denounced, and and, and so on generally more by people on the right, of course, whereas now a lot of the denunciation of academics is coming from the left. But infanticide is an issue about which people have these very strong beliefs and emotions, um, and yet there are challenges to their views that are based on considerations of just internal consistency um, that we have to think about. And this, this is what philosophers do they say you believe x you also believe y x and y are inconsistent which are you going to give up how are you going to modify your views in order to achieve some kind of consistency here another belief about uh, infants that's widely held is that it can be permissible to practice what is known as selective non-treatment so Uh, This is the practice whereby an infant is determined to have some condition that was not detected prenatally. Uh, It can be treated, but the life of the child is expected to be burdensome both to itself and to others, and the doctors decide we're not going to treat this condition. We're going to allow the infant to die. Now, that's widely accepted practice, and doctors and parents agree to this. They're going not to treat the, the infant. The infant's going to die. Well that's allowing an infant to die. And we have to ask, is actually killing an infant that much worse than allowing the infant to die? The outcome is exactly the same. In fact, the killing might prevent the infant from suffering uh, more while it's during the period when it's allowed to die. And what's important to notice here is that in a lot of these cases in which selective non-treatment is practiced, it's something that no one would think was permissible if the child were five years old and had the same condition. And that is, once the child, if if the condition is treated and the child survives, no one would ever think, yeah, let's stop feeding the child and let him die at five. Right. Ordinary people's intuitions suggest to them there is a difference between a newborn infant and a five-year-old. And we have to think, what's the difference between a newborn infant and a late-term human fetus? Um, and yet people become enraged if anyone suggests infanticide could be permissible in some cases. So that's a, that's a parallel uh, debate that philosophers have actually had Uh, And about which some members of the public have been very outraged My my friend and colleague, uh, Francesca Minerva, and um, her co-author, also a friend and colleague of mine, Alberto Giubilini, published a paper, I believe, in 2012, in which they argued for the permissibility of infanticide in some rare cases. And Mm -hmm. they both got lots and lots of death threats. Francesca was advised by the university, don't come into the office, stay at home, lock your door, blah, blah. Right. Um, so this kind of thing has happened before, but I think there's no avoiding thinking our way through these problems. Because if we don't, we we are going to have views that are inconsistent and incoherent, and we're not going to understand the truth.
1: Yeah, uh, one thing that struck me about the, about even these kind of examples, uh, as you say, that sort of fantastic example, thinking through uh, some of the abortion um, issues, sort of lay this question out of thinking about internal consistency. I was struck by uh, when the Kirshner um, uh, controversy erupted. Um, uh, Some of the recent discussion uh, I've, I've, been paying attention to, not contributed to, um, in, in political philosophy of thinking about um, how young should the voting age be? Um, is it reasonable to allow 13-year-olds to uh, vote, for example? I think most uh, Americans have the intuition that that's probably not true, um, but there are there's a movement, growing movement, I think, in political philosophy in which uh, philosophers want to say, no, no, we should be lowering dramatically uh, what the voting age is and allowing people much younger uh, to participate in our democratic life, uh, which raises very interesting questions about, okay, well, there's a lot of lines that we draw on age between children and adults, um, not only on voting, but lots of other things as well. And if you reduce the voting age down to, say, 13, what else ought to follow uh, from that logic? If you think they're rational enough to make decisions they ought to vote, is that also true for uh, drinking? Is it true for driving? Is it true for serving military? But also potentially, of course, this line um, of thinking what's the age of consent um, to sexual relations, for example, which we also um, hinge on age. So now there's all kinds of, of consistency problems that arise once we start thinking about um, uh, some of these kinds of questions. And some of those is a question about what's our consistency and how do we think through the consistency in lines that we draw across different domains um, of subject matter, um, uh, for example. And yeah, hopefully um, philosophers can help us think that through. Yeah,
0: well, one thing I think, um, a philosopher, at least me, would say, <laughs> is that um, the law needs sharp lines. You, you can't gain the necessary knowledge to make uh, uh, informed judgments on a case-by-case basis. You know, you can't submit each child to, uh, uh, each person to a range of tests to determine whether they have the sort of cognitive and emotional maturity, let's say, to to, to, uh, be granted the vote. But one thing is true about morality, and that is that there are quite certainly a number of 13 year olds who are much better qualified cognitively and emotionally and so on to vote than many 30, 40 and 50 year olds. Um, And so um, morality has to take into consideration what the actual characteristics are that are relevant to the permissibility of a person engaging in a certain practice or whatever. where the law law can't do that, it can only mm-hmm. draw a line that somehow roughly coincides with the division of capacities uh, between those who have them sufficiently above a certain age and those who have them insufficiently in general below a certain age. But there are always going to be exceptions to that. Um, uh, uh, and that's going to be true across all, all of these issues. There are going to be some 12-year-olds yeah. who, who are going to be much better drivers than many 18-year-olds. They, for example, they, they don't yet have all the testosterone or whatever it is rushing through them. So a, a, a 12-year-old boy might be a better driver than an 18-year-old man uh, because the 18-year-old is going to be doing wild, reckless stuff that a 12-year-old might not do. Um, and, and and so on for all the issues you 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 mentioned.
1: Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, sometimes philosophers certainly find themselves asking. This is an example of it. Certainly, um, uh, questions that um, uh, at any given moment are sort of widely assumed that we know the right answers to in society. There's a conventional answer uh, yeah. that's generally accepted. Um, uh, to, to what degree do phlo- should philosophers be taking that into account? That is to say, everyone around me seems to think this is the right answer to this question. Um, are there times when philosophers always say, okay, I should leave that one alone? Um, or, or is it always the case for a philosopher to say, well, wait a second, maybe I should be questioning what it is everybody else is taking for granted.
0: I think it's the duty of a philosopher and it's really the duty of anybody to think critically about the moral beliefs that people in their society share and take for granted. That's because we, we, and by this I mean human societies and human communities have so often been wrong uh, when there was near unanimity within the society about the permissibility or impermissibility of some practice. I mean, you think back um, to uh, you know a period I don't know when. Uh, 60, 80, 100 years ago when societies believed that homosexuality was immoral. And this has been a belief that uh, has uh, been deeply embedded in different world religions. Christianity, uh, for example, there's a passage in Leviticus that says that uh, if a man lies with another man the way he lies with a woman, uh, surely he shall be put to death. And there are still a number of Christians who believe that homosexuality is deeply immoral. But it's interesting to note how views have changed about this over time. We can be wrong about these things. American Southerners were dead wrong about slavery, though they passionately believed um, that slavery was not just permissible, but, you know, the right thing to do for these poor people, bring them into civilized society and so on and so forth. they were dead wrong about this but they were pretty certain that they were right and this sort of thing is i think it's it's particularly easy to be confident in one's beliefs about the immorality of certain kinds of sexual practice Um, for example incest between siblings there's a i believe it was the psychologist. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, who did an experiment uh, about beliefs about incest, asked a bunch of people, you know, I may be getting this wrong because yeah. I can't remember it very well. So apologies to Jonathan if I am getting this wrong. But my sense is that you know, he asked a bunch of people, is incest wrong? And everybody said, yes, it's terribly wrong. Um, And incest between brother and sister was horribly, horribly wrong. And then so he then gave a a sort of thought experiment. Suppose a brother and a sister decide they're going to meet at a remote place only once. It's a one off thing. They're going to uh, have uh, foolproof birth control and they're just going to have sex one time. And they both agree to this happily, they consent, and then they're going to just resume uh, ordinary sibling relations after this. But they think, well, wouldn't this be fun just once? And suppose they do it and then never, never do it again or whatever. And then I think Jonathan asks people what Explain to me why what they have done is so horribly wrong if they've done this. Right. And I think what you find is people sputter about this a bit, you know, that they'd still believe it's horribly wrong. But they can't give any real explanation because they can't point to consequences because right. no baby is conceived and no, uh, uh, you know, genetic defects have been uh, created in this way and so on and so forth. They haven't hurt anybody else. Nobody in the world knows about it except the two of them. Mm-hmm. They retain their mental health and so on. So what have they done that's so unspeakably immoral? And a lot of a lot of um, attitudes about sex are this way. So, for example, most people believe that bestiality that is having sex with an animal is horribly, horribly wrong. Um, And yet, if you ask these people, is it okay to go out and kill an animal in a painful way and then eat its body? They say, yeah, sure. That's fine. Mm -hmm, Which is worse for the animal? I mean, um, so I'm not defending bestiality. Uh, I don't have, you know, I don't have a view about this. I'm just saying people are confused about moral matters, even when there are usually, even when there's a solid consensus in a society, we have lots of evidence of this from the past. And we shouldn't think of ourselves as exempt from error. Uh, Whereas all of our, our, our ancestors were vulnerable to error, but we know the truth now.
1: We and as you say, sometimes the, the goal here is to think carefully through these arguments, think about why we support a particular position, Uh, in order to expose error and and the error may lead us to want to change our views um, ultimately. And so uh, society as a whole may in fact uh, find itself changing its views uh, about um, some things that they thought were clearly okay or clearly wrong, uh, but they move to the other side of the line as just slavery at one point, homosexuality at another point, uh, society moves on, thinks about this differently, comes to different conclusions. Um, Presumably it's also, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Just for one
0: half a second and say, It's not just that by having open debate and discussion of these issues, we sometimes change our, we sometimes realize that we've been making a mistake and change our minds. It's also by having this uh, open discussion of issues that we can justifiably continue to hold beliefs that we've had. In other words, if our beliefs are never challenged, we, uh, we can't be confident that 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 uh, in in continuing to hold these beliefs this is a point
1: that john stuart mill made and on liberty. Yeah, this is exactly where I was going. That's why I was gonna ask about oh, okay. this. that. Sometimes we, we need to reconstruct our, our reasons for, for thinking about a view that we need to tear down the arguments or, or our intuitions to some degree in order to sort of get to the foundation and then reassess, okay, well, what's, what's a better argument? What's the real rationale? Uh, what really is driving our intuitions that clarifies uh, why we might find ourselves back in a very similar position where we started from, uh, but we went through a lot of work. Uh, in order to get us get us back to that position. Why is yeah. it going worth going through that work? And so uh, one thing that's sort of annoying about philosophers from that perspective is they can put us through those paces where they are challenging us to say, Oh, well, why do you really think this and, and aren't the reasons why you think it not very good ones and and <laughs> uh, what and make us sputter when we come across these particular uh, counterfactuals and, and thought experiments. Um, and then they can lead us through an argument that gets us back to pretty much where we started from where is that well, why do we go through all that effort. Um, so what's the value from a, for a philosopher to. Uh, Uh, interrogate us in that kind of way, uh, put us through all this trouble, Um, even if part of what the goal is, is to say, okay, well, we might in fact get back to a point uh, where uh, the answers that we started from uh, turn out now that we still think they're the right answers um, after having gone through all this.
0: Yeah, well, we don't really know when we initiate this process, that that's going to be the outcome, namely that our original beliefs are going to be reaffirmed. Very seldom do they get fully reaffirmed. What what happens if they are not overturned altogether is that they are refined and clarified and qualified in certain ways. Uh, We discover nuances, we discover exceptions, whatever. And so we Re-articulate the set of principles, or whatever they may be, um, to accommodate details, um, qualifications, nuances, whatever that we weren't aware of previously. But we don't, we don't know that our beliefs are going to be reaffirmed. I can say, I'll just tell you, you know, a bit of autobiography here. Um, what I find is that the more I think about any particular practical moral issue, the more I come to see is relevant to it. That is, I, I, I come to understand how little I have understood it. I can always go deeper. There's always more to understand. Uh, so as I think about things over and over and over again, and I work on, I've worked on some, some of the same issues for 25, 30, even 40 years, I'm thinking about these things over and over and over again, and I'm always discovering new uh, insights that I hadn't appreciated. Discovering mistakes that I have made, you know, I make mistakes all the time, and and we all do. And and it's only by thinking really, really carefully and trying to think impartially um, and without any kind of defensiveness or ego in this, you want to get to the truth. Um, and, and when you do that, you you find it's always the issues are always deeper, harder, more complicated than you thought before.
1: Yeah, that, that's often what I find with the problems I I try to work with. <clears throat> and part of what I really like about academia, and, and from that perspective, is uh, things are often more complicated than I initially assumed. Uh, and and yeah. when I start digging into them, they're harder problems. Um, I start understanding why people sometimes disagree with me because <laughs> because <laughs> I realize how hard the problems are. And and that's fun um, in that sense, intellectually speaking. It's challenging to try to think those things through. It's a little disturbing in some ways because you start exploring those and realize, okay, I can't fully justify my own intuitions on this. And I so I feel a little uh, confused about what it is I'm thinking even though uh, uh, I still maybe think that's the right conclusion by having trouble getting there uh, on, on these occasions. Um, and, th- and that's part of the challenge. Um, so as you say, you spent your whole career uh, dealing uh, in this uh, world and, and uh, dealing with these um, uh, very challenging, uh, difficult, uh, controversial uh, questions of uh, practical ethics um, and the like. Um, how often do you find yourself uh, encountering a problem or encountering an issue where you just say, <clears throat> "That's too icky. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not touching that one." Uh, even though I'm going to spend time thinking about. Um, uh, all kinds of other controversial issues but some some issues are are too controversial for me. Uh, I'm not I'm not going there.
0: I don't think I've ever had that experience. It is that there are let, let me start over. If I'm going to work on an issue it's going to take a lot of time. A lot of time. I'm going to do some reading, I'm going to spend a lot of time writing out my thoughts. Ultimately, the view towards thinking it through and arriving at some conclusions, however tentative, and publishing them. Mm-hmm. There's a limited number of issues that I can devote myself to, to thinking about. And the ones that are icky are just ones that interest me less. <laughs> um, but I, w- I don't know if I would ever kind of just turn away from an issue and say, no, I'm not, I can't possibly think about that because it's too awful. I mean I've written I've written about war and right. you know I've had to read about genocide and torture and that kind of thing. All of that is pretty awful to have to read
1: through. Um, it also involves issues that often we think think we have pretty clear answers to. So we think about torture, for example, um, is one of these topics which unfortunately uh, we've had to discuss publicly uh, over the last several years. And it is one of those issues where, I think most people would say, "Well, we know the right answer about torture. So, what's what's all the fuss about? Why bother um, uh, having any kind of philosophical discussion about it? Because it's uh, it's settled um, and and clear. And yet, uh, it's it's the kind of thing you find yourself uh, having to explore."
0: Yeah, I well, I I was a participant in the debate about torture arising from the practice of torture fairly extensively by the Bush administration, and. Um, What I found there was that I thought a lot of the people who were opposed to the practice of torture by the United States were giving implausible arguments because they took an absolutist form. They were saying the torture of a person can never, ever under any circumstances be justified. And I thought, That's got to be a mistake, we think that it's permissible to kill people in self defense and in defense of others, we believe that it can be permissible to kill people very painfully if necessary to defend innocent people. And there are do seem to be instances in which torture could be used uh, as a means of defending other innocent people. classic uh, ticking time bomb case is an example that's meant to show that uh, it's an example for your listeners yeah. which it's 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 virtually certain that this particular person has planted a, a a time bomb in a city it's going to go off it's going to kill the hundreds or thousands of people and this person won't say where he's planted it and the only way that one might get the answer is by torturing this person. If you get the answer and can uh, stop the bomb from going off in time, then you'll prevent this person from having killed hundreds of thousands of people. So if there's a possibility that torture might uh, yield the relevant information, then that might be an instance in which this person is morally liable to be tortured. That is that he would not be wronged by being tortured given that it was necessary to do this um, to defend all these people. So. I defended this non-absolutist view about torture while being opposed in practice to the use of torture and holding that torture ought to be uh, categorically illegal and that it should therefore be used only by people who are willing to expose themselves to the penalties for using it because it's something that could be morally justified only in the extremist circumstances. But I found myself being attacked as a, as a proponent of torture. Right. I mean, I had been, I had been an op- opponent of torture in all these debates, highly critical of the Bush administration. Um, and yet people weren't sensitive to the, the distinction between an absolutist condemnation of torture and uh, a condemnation of torture in practice that explains that the best objection to torture is not absolutist. It can allow it in the most extreme circumstances.
1: Yeah. So, um, uh getting that nuance across to a larger audience is often very challenging and and often uh, fine distinctions uh, can be lost. And you deal with topics um, routinely that are uh, in the public sphere, um, oftentimes. I know some, some of the topics may be a little more esoteric, less less likely uh, to engage public attention. Yeah. But lots of these issues are important issues with real public policy consequences. They're pe- things people care about. Um, uh, you, you want your ideas to some degree to be expressed to the public and have people understand these things better uh, for, for broader public reasons. Uh, to what degree have you found there to be a real challenge of uh, moving from a purely scholarly world into a slightly more public world in which um, uh, your ideas get conveyed into a larger um, audience that's not enmeshed in, in uh, philosophy seminars, um, but, um, but do care about some of these issues because of larger issues of public morality or, or public policy and, and the like? What are the challenges for philosophers who are trying to uh, navigate across that line?
0: Well, Again, a little bit of autobiography, I got into philosophy just because I cared a lot about a range of moral and political issues. It wasn't that I wanted to be a philosopher and study philosophy. In fact, I know very little about philosophy other than moral and political philosophy. I don't have a a general educational background in philosophy. I I know nothing about many of the areas of philosophy. But I wanted to think carefully about moral and political issues because I wanted to be an activist. I wanted to try to make a change for the better in the world but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't gonna be advocating views and policies and so on that were wrong. So it's for me, it's very important to think as carefully and deeply and truthfully and honestly and impartially about these things as we possibly can. And that requires openness to considering a range of points of view and thinking about them and then showing oneself and others why those positions are untenable if they if they are. Um, and all of this would be less important if it had had absolutely no effect on um, the way other people think, and in particular, the way the broader public thinks, and the voting public thinks, and politicians and policymakers think. And so, the the ultimate aim of my work is to to um, make a contribution to public debates and public policy. Um, I'm not very effective at doing that, but what <laughs> it means is that I do I would I do welcome writing for popular media um and uh, you know doing podcasts like this and others to try to get some of the ideas and arguments i've had circulated beyond the little tiny realm of academic philosophy and i think one area in which i succeeded very slightly in doing this is in um uh, the ethics of war Mm -hmm. i've written uh, quite a bit in the past about the ethics of war i'm not working on it so much at, at the moment but i do know people at the main military academies in the us and in the uk who teach my work to to the uh, students who are going to be officers in the military. And so I know that there's been some trickle-down effect in that way. And I would would hope that there would be trickle-down effects in other ways. But um, I haven't succeeded in the way that, for example, Peter Singer has in writing books that have been of wide general interest and have changed people large numbers of people's views about issues
1: Uh, not many people have uh,
0: (laughs) that's true peter is unique um and uh, a little unfair
1: uh, to hold him up as your standard (laughs) well i must be a failure i haven't i haven't done that (laughs) yeah well for
0: me that is that that is the ideal i have uh uh, you know, I I admired the way Bertrand Russell used his um, standing as an academic philosopher to become a, a really, really deeply important public intellectual and influence formulation of policy and public opinion. And there are many contemporary people who who have Done much the same, and uh, you know, I wish I, I wish I were one of those people, but <laughs> I'm. Although,
1: although all those people are also examples of people who are very controversial. right? I mean that they they're making important contributions both in the academic sphere and also in the public sphere, um, but their views are not widely embraced. Uh, they are people uh, who are genuine sources of controversy um, in in their moments. That was true of Bertrand Russell um, yeah. uh, in the 20th century. It's true of true of Peter Singer um, uh, now. Um, yeah. I think of uh, classes in uh, undergraduate classes in um, uh, applied ethics as being uh, some of the most exciting, fun, uh, popular classes um, often on college campuses. Students often enjoy um, uh, confronting these kinds of uh, difficult issues in part because they have very natural intuitions about them and they enjoy the challenge of of, uh, having to uh, think them through in in new kinds of ways. I wonder to what degree that's changed. Is it? Do you ever find yourself uh, with students find, uh, that, that students are more reluctant to engage these issues than they might once have been, or there are ever times when you feel reluctant to put these issues on the table for students and worry about what is their reaction going to be um, to put some controversial issue on the table? Is, is it Has that changed over time? And how do you think in general about uh, trying to introduce students to these kinds of, of issues?
0: I, yeah, I think, there was this there was in the late 1960s with the counterculture and response in part to the Vietnam War an insistence among students that they wanted their classes to be more relevant to the real world and that was really one of the factors that led to the development and acceptance of practical ethics or applied ethics in the curriculum they wanted discussions of war and abortion and uh, euthanasia and uh, lots of other practical issues in their academic work, and, and, and they got it, and, and Peter was one of the earliest uh, people to do, to do that, to provide guidance and literature um, for them. I think that's still the case. Students are still idealistic and want to engage with these issues, but there is now, I think, a greater tendency among students to think that on a range of issues, We already know the truth and anybody who challenges the currently orthodox views um, is a heretic who needs to be banished and silenced. And um, I think this is widely known. I'm not saying anything that's new here, but I, I do I do have students who are friends of mine who confide in me that they feel frightened to say things among their peers for fear of getting uh, uh, ostracized and and so on. And it's certainly true that uh, professors now, uh, many feel much, feel considerable pressure not to talk about certain things or not to express certain views. Um, I don't recall that being the case when I was uh, an undergraduate, uh, when I was a, minor part of the counterculture in the United States in the late 60s and early 70s. So I do think things have changed a bit. Um, What what I'm reminded of now, which was going on in the late 60s, -hmm. but I didn't know about it, was the Chinese Cultural Revolution. You know, when uh, students were able not just to denounce their professors and so on, but actually to imprison them, torture them, beat them, harangue them with lectures uh, and so on. And these students thought that they had access to the truth It had been given to them by Mao. Everybody in all previous history had failed to understand the truth. They were part of the revolution now they had the truth and by God everybody was going to uh, toe the line and, and believe exactly the same things and it, uh, it was it was absolutely horrific at that time. Yeah. even people who did hold the Orthodox views were imprisoned and tortured and beaten and so on by their colleagues for just you know personal animosity or people vying to to show off their orthodoxy. How can I prove myself to be uh, a, a, a more Maoist than they? thou? Well, I'll, you know, I'll beat you and torture you in the name of uh, some saying of Mao's. Um, and I think we, we're, we're in a condition that's nowhere near as extreme as the Cultural Revolution, but I, I, I do wonder if people uh these days know very much about the cultural revolution they ought to familiarize themselves with it and see how see the similarities now it's scary
1: yeah you're certainly not the only one who uh has has drawn some parallels um uh obviously the cultural revolution much more um extreme uh, as it was being experienced um in those days in in china than anything uh, experienced uh uh, in the United States or, or Great Britain, uh, more more recently, but um, uh, some some disturbing uh, connections between them. Um, the, I want to come back briefly to. Um, uh, something you mentioned about uh, uh, your colleague, among the things that uh, he's been exploring in his work lately is the problem of uh, sexual relations and consent between uh, faculty and uh, the students, um, uh, for example, which is an interesting kind of example um, to raise, both because it's also a source of controversy on college campuses, but also because it involves policy um, and behavior on college campuses. Um, uh, We've seen, new policies adopted on this issue uh, relatively recently um, in lots of uh, places. And one thing that's come up in the, um, kirshner case um, at SUNY um, is a complaint that he's undermining existing policies that, that faculty have legal obligations um, involving um, uh, sexual relations between uh, or sexual acts between uh, children and adults. Uh, there are policies of the university relating to reporting requirements and the like um, uh, when there are violations of these things. Um, and one of the complaints about him in this case is uh, he's undermining uh, those policies. Uh, maybe he can't be trusted to actually implement um, uh, those those policies um, because of what he's doing as a philosopher. Um, uh, likewise, you can imagine raising these kinds of questions about, well, how should we think about the underlying ethics um, of uh, sexual acts between uh, professors and uh, students might run afoul of university policies if implemented. So to what degree um, uh, do professors have a responsibility not to Um, uh, subvert um, policies and laws by asking the wrong questions? And to what degree can we trust professors um, or more philosophy to actually um, adhere to these uh, kinds of obligations uh, when they've been imposed on them? Uh,
0: I guess my view is that accepted policies are just never sacrosanct. And it may well be that the policy is harmful or wrong in some way. It may be widely accepted and everybody assumes it's right. If a professor has reason to doubt the uh, uh, desirability or the appropriateness of the policy, then I think it, the, the professor has, is certainly permitted to speak out about this and challenge the policy and try to persuade colleagues to alter the policy if the if the professor thinks that the policy is harmful or damaging or counterproductive or self-defeating in some way. Um, Policies often are. Um, And so, yeah, I think policies like like all other things are to be challenged, but challenged not by attacking other people and vilifying uh, defenders of the policy, but by calmly and rationally explaining why the professor thinks the policy is unacceptable. Um, In the case of my colleague here at Oxford, Amya Srinivasan, she, as I remember, believes that it is wrong for uh, professors to have sex with students, not so much for the a uh, currently orthodox reason that there's an asymmetry in power between the two of them that can lead to uh, in a, a, uh, students consenting but under pressure or something like that. Her, her view is, I think, that um, something like this it's simply not possible to teach somebody you're in love with and are having sex with. Um, Mm, right. I, I I don't recall any argument for that. That seems prima facie pretty implausible to me. I think if I, you know, if I love my wife, I could teach her, you know, what I what I think is true about philosophy. But um, uh, that's another thing, in other words. She, but she's right. so in that in, in that particular instance, at any rate, she's not challenging policy. She's providing a new argument for
1: it. Yeah, part of what's part of what's kind of remarkable about how this Kirshner case has has played out is that. Um, uh he comes to this conclusion ultimately that, in fact, these acts ought to be illegal. There are rationales for making them illegal. There's rationales for the kinds of policies the university has in place uh, under these circumstances, but he thinks we need to be thinking through what the arguments are uh, for those things. Um, and, and, uh, and sometimes the, the right reason for having some of those policies is somewhat different uh, than might be uh, commonly assumed, and yet, um, a lot of people have jumped quickly to the conclusion that, uh, well, he's then uh, trying to subvert the policy um, itself, or as I said, maybe even can't be trusted to implement the policy um, uh, himself because he wants to raise these questions and, and um, try to get people to think more carefully about what what it is they're committed to. Um, it's a uh, frustrating well, dynamic as about how, about how this plays out and how we translate what it is that professional philosophers are trying to do um, with uh, how people are living in the world and and uh, operating in a world with institutions and policies and, and laws.
0: Can I suggest one possibility? Yeah. And this just a thought because as I say, I haven't watched the interview um, and I haven't read the book. Um, okay. I do know of a passage in the book in which he says what you say, namely that, uh, uh, child rape. What is it? I've got it here. Uh, Child rape and incest, both of which are extremely harmful, um, should be criminalized, and so on. So, um, But what he might think, and again, I don't know, is that because law has to draw sharp lines, as I said earlier, all these things should be uh, illegal and criminalized. Um, But there may be rare instances in which a 12 or 13 year old child is sufficiently mature to uh, engage in sexual relations with an adult um, on the basis of understanding. Now, that seems kind of unlikely to me because it just seems to me that there are things uh, about the way that sex is understood that may not be really accessible to a 12 year old or a 13 year old, just their, their minds aren't sufficiently developed to, to, to uh, be able to right. understand these matters in their full depth and significance. But if there were, then his argument could be in rare instances, this might be morally permissible, but in all instances, it should be illegal. That's a possibility. I'm just, I'm just yeah. suggesting that could be a uh, A a possible view here, based on the distinction I drew earlier between law, which has to have sharp lines and morality, which varies from case to case, depending on the nature of particular individuals and the development of their psychological and cognitive capacities.
1: And of course, a crucial thing for academic freedom from that perspective is the, the point of academic freedom is not whether we're protecting people only when they make good arguments that we're persuaded exactly. by, uh, but the point in part is precisely to uh, protect. Uh, sometimes people are making arguments we in the end of the day don't find very persuasive, don't find very compelling, um, uh, but they are legitimate kinds of arguments to be making legitimate concerns to be raising legitimate questions to be asking within the discipline um, uh, at hand. And so the right thing we all be judging is ultimately not are these persuasive of arguments, and not that you get the right answer at the end of the day, um, but is he engaged in the kind of thing um, that academics are engaged in?
0: Well, there's more, there's even more than that. Uh, it, this just occurred to me, but this is something that happens to me all the time. I'll get a criticism of some argument of mine from somebody, student, colleague, whatever, and I'll be pretty sure that the criticism is wrong. I'll think about it a lot. I'll think, is there, is this person right? Have I made a mistake? Yeah. Sometimes they lead me to you know, give up the view, sometimes to modify it. Sometimes, however, I think that the objection is just completely wrong, but it makes me understand something that I hadn't understood before. Right. So even bad arguments um, can often prompt us to realize something that we didn't see before. Just by thinking about the bad argument, it takes us to closer to the truth. Yeah, That's a very common phenomenon. I'm sure you're familiar with it as well, but it happens to me all the time. Yeah. Just as it happens to me all the time that I get objections to my arguments that I recognize are perfectly correct and I've made a stupid mistake. It happens all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have both those experiences to be sure. Um, and, and it's sort of fascinating in that sense. I think people who um, don't spend a lot of time thinking about arguments and trying to work them through and engaging these kinds of debates, uh, I think it's, it's easy not to appreciate the extent to which sometimes encountering bad arguments and really trying to think them through, um, uh, can be actually illuminating, um, exactly. that there are real gains there. Um, sometimes exactly. they're bad arguments. They're not worth the time. <laughs> so you That's need right. to set them aside and move on. As you say, life is short there their opportunity costs. Um, but, uh. But, some, but sometimes even arguments that um, at the end of the day we conclude are not good ones. Um, uh, grappling seriously with those arguments, hearing them out um, uh, can nonetheless be a useful experience and we, we come away from it um, better than we otherwise would have been.
0: Exactly.
1: Um, so, are there uh, other questions or issues we ought to um, uh, raise before we uh, s- uh, sign off? Things, things that people ought to understand about uh, moral philosophers and what they do uh, that uh, maybe they don't adequately understand.
0: I can't think of anything off just top of my head. I, I think we've we've covered um, a lot of ground here. Um, Perfect. Yeah, I hope hope the
1: conversation that is is useful for um, uh, especially for those who uh, don't spend much time reading more philosophy or thinking about what more philosophers do. Um, uh, But it's important to sort of understand and appreciate that in order to uh, have a proper context for thinking about the kind of dispute um, that's currently taking place um, at SUNY and the larger public conversation um, that's occurring uh, broadly about what academics do um, and mm-hmm. what universities um, are good for and, and whether or not uh, they ought to be tolerated uh, for the kinds of things that they uh, do. Um, you can read more about uh, Stephen Kirshner case um, at SUNY Fredonia on the websites of FIRE and the AFA. Uh, we will include a link in the show notes, to the letter from faculty in support um, of Kirshner, which both Jeff and I have signed. Um, you can add your name to the list of signatories by contacting uh, FIRE. Uh, We will see how this case develops um, in coming days. Um, Please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform uh, so that you don't miss an episode um, and rate us on those platforms, which helps others uh, find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom
0: Podcast.